Dateline, Sugar House Bulletin, January 5th, 1951. Headline, Susan's passing bad checks again. Quote, several Sugar House merchants were victimized by a woman passing bad checks during the holiday season, Lieutenant C. Owen Paulson, Sugar House Police Department head reported. The woman was described as being about 35 years old, 5 feet, 5 inches, medium build, with long hair to her shoulders. The checks were passed under the names of Susan Dougal and Susan Ames, with an address given as 2145 Chadwick, the Sugar House Prison Farm Facility. End quote. I'm Wendy, this is Demolish Salt Lake, and part two of the story of the Utah Territorial Penitentiary. Hello and welcome to episode six and part two of the story of the Utah Territorial Penitentiary. In the last episode, I talked about the buildings of the prison, its history, escapes, and the role it played in housing men convicted of polygamy, including my great-great-grandfather. I'm still trying to get used to that one. For this episode, I'm going to get into executions, famous prisoners, stories from community members, and its closing and demolition. There's a lot to cover. Oh, and in case you're wondering, I found no update on whether Susan was arrested for passing bad checks. All right, let's talk some history. I'm going to dive right in by talking about executions. Nothing graphic, I promise. By 1950, 36 men had been executed by the state, and all but five chose firing squad. The others chose hanging. When J.J. Morris was given the decision between hanging and firing squad for the murder of his wife in 1912, he chose hanging so that the state had to go to the expense of building gallows. This leads me to believe there wasn't permanent gallows at the prison, because before that, the only other person to be hanged at the prison was Charles H. Feed in August of 1896. Execution by firing squad took place in the prison yard between the outer walls and one of the buildings. It was a very unceremonious place. The firing squad consisted of five men. Their identities were all concealed. Each was given a loaded rifle. However, one of the rifles was loaded with blanks, but none of the men had any idea which rifle they had been given. A target was pinned to the prisoner's shirt right over his heart to give the men their aim, and a masker hood was placed over the prisoner's head right before the execution. So speaking of executions, let's talk about two of the most famous prisoners executed at the penitentiary. On the night of January 10th, 1914, John Morrison and his son Arling were preparing to close their small grocery store for the night. Another son, Merlin, was in the back waiting for the others so they could all go home. Two masked armed men entered the store and shot at John, who was behind the counter. Arling grabbed the family's revolver and shot back at the men before being shot himself. Then the masked men left. Merlin came out from the back to find his brother dead and his father mortally wounded. John would die before medical help arrived. Merlin told police that he caught a glimpse of one of the men and gave a vague description. He also said that one of the men shouted, quote, we've got you now, end quote, before shooting John. Now, the police knew John had made several enemies 
and even had a shootout with another armed individual at his store previously. Newspapers reported that revenge had led the two gunmen to kill John and Arling. A little later that same night, Dr. Frank McHugh was awoken to pounding on his door. A man claiming to have been shot in an argument over a woman asked for his help with a gunshot wound. The doctor cleaned and bandaged the wound and found someone to drive the man home. McHugh's friend would later report to police that the man asked him to pull over near a field and threw a gun into the field. The next morning, reading about the previous night's events, Dr. McHugh called the police and told them of his interaction with the wounded man. The police tracked down the location where McHugh's friend dropped the man off and stormed the house where they found a man matching the doctor's description. The police told the man not to move, but he appeared to reach for something and the police shot him through his hand. He was actually just reaching for his pants. The police had no idea that the man they now had in custody was a significant figure in a radical labor movement and the whole ordeal was soon to become national headlines. Joel Haglund was born in Gävles, Sweden in 1879. He came to the U.S. in 1902 and worked as a laborer, miner, lumberman, and longshoreman. The horrible working conditions he experienced on these jobs led him to join the labor union Industrial Workers of the World, or IWW. Its members were known by the nickname Wobblies. Joel wrote many famous songs such as The Preacher and the Slave and Casey Jones, A Union Scab. His songs appeared in the IWW's Little Red Songbook, becoming a rallying cry for workers fighting to improve their working conditions. He was at the front lines of many workers' strikes and protests. He had a share of run-ins with the law. It was during this time that he changed his name. There's a lot of talk about why he did this, such as his involvement with the IWW or the petty theft he committed to support himself. Either way, he soon became known as Joseph Hillstrom or Joe Hill. At his preliminary hearing, the prosecution went with the theory that the murders were a robbery gone wrong. Joe accepted the help of two young attorneys to represent him at his trial. But this relationship soon soured as Joe accused them of being in on the state's case to convict him of murder. The judge would not allow Joe to fire his attorneys, and from then on, Joe participated very little in his own trial. He didn't even take the stand in his own defense. The prosecution's case relied on witnesses, including Merlin, who testified Joe resembled one of the gunmen, and Dr. McHugh, who testified that the injury he treated for Joe was too much of a coincidence for the timing. The jury deliberated for a few hours before coming back with a guilty verdict. When given the option between hanging and firing squad for his execution, Joe said, quote, I'll take the shooting. I've been shot a couple times before, and I think I can take it. End quote. Now that's not the end of the story. His cause became a rallying cry for the IWW. The organization claimed big business had something to do with his conviction and asked that letters be sent to the state demanding Joe's release. And the letters, telegrams, and petitions came in by the hundreds to both Utah Governor William Spry and U.S. President Woodrow Wilson. 
The Swedish ambassador asked for a full review of Joe's case, and even Helen Keller sent a letter asking for Joe's release. With an election coming up, President Wilson felt pressured by union groups to intervene, and he asked Governor Spry to delay Joe's execution. Spry refused, and Joe's fate was sealed. Joe's last letter to his fellow Wobblies stated, quote, Don't waste time mourning. Organize. End quote. He was executed on the morning of November 19, 1915. Joe himself gave the command to shoot. The IWW gave Joe a big funeral and cremated his body. His ashes were given to IWW members to distribute all over the world and in every state, with one exception, Utah. John W. Deering wasn't so much famous for his crime as he was for his execution. Deering had already spent time in prison in California when he was captured by authorities in August of 1938 in Chicago under suspicion of involvement in a finance company robbery. While in custody, he confessed to not only this robbery, but to all of the following. The murder of Oliver R. Meredith Jr. in Salt Lake City during a robbery. The kidnapping and robbery of Mr. and Mrs. Maurice L. Hove of Ogden. Shooting two Salt Lake City police officers. Killing a man aboard a freight train and dumping his body into the swamp. And the shooting of a Portland, Oregon police officer. Oliver R. Meredith Jr., a local businessman, was found fatally wounded in his car outside his Salt Lake City home on May 9, 1938. He passed before he could identify his killer. Deering's name was brought up in this case when Mr. and Mrs. Hove identified him as the man who kidnapped and drove them around Salt Lake before releasing them unharmed. Captain E.A. Hedman, chief of the Salt Lake City Detective Bureau, announced that a gun belonging to Deering was found in a pawn shop in Nevada and was the weapon used to kill Mr. Meredith. Deering waived his extradition and was brought back to Salt Lake City and stood trial for the murder. In September of 1938, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. In handing down the sentencing, Judge Herbert M. Schiller said to Deering, quote, you stand convicted of the most serious crime known to society. You have taken the life of another man, a good man, under circumstances particularly heinous. It is mandatory on the court to pass sentence pursuant to the statute and impose the extreme penalty. Before that, however, you have the right to make an election of going to your death before a firing squad or to be hanged. Do you desire to make that election? End quote. Deering replied, quote, Yes, Your Honor, I take the firing squad. End quote. Then Judge Schiller sentenced him to die by firing squad on Monday, October 31st, 1938. Before his execution, Deering gave permission to be hooked up to an electrocardiograph while being executed. This was pretty big news. According to a Salt Lake Telegraph article from October 29th, 1938, quote, for probably the first time in medical history, science will learn Monday exactly what a man's heart does when pierced by rifle bullets, end quote. Dr. Stephen H. Beasley, the prison physician, would perform the experience and record the results. For his part, Deering said, quote, 
The only trouble is I won't be able to see the picture. Otherwise, it's a swell idea, end quote. In another article from the Salt Lake Telegram that same day, Dr. Beasley gave an interview about the results of the electrocardiograph. The article reads in part that Deering's heart stopped at 15.6 seconds after the bullet struck and that his heartbeat was 120 beats per minute when placed in the execution chair and then immediately shot up to 180 beats per minute. After his death, his eyes were harvested for donation and his body was taken to the University of Utah Medical School. His last words were, quote, Goodbye, I'm all set. Let her go. End quote. There were about 100 spectators at Deering's execution. This wasn't out of the ordinary for executions. The sheriff's office received applications to attend executions quite often. When Peter Mortensen was executed for the murder of his neighbor, James R. Hay, in 1903, the sheriff was inundated with applications for admission to his execution by firing squad, and about 75 people attended. This was probably because Mortensen's trial was a big deal in 1902 and 1903. He actually received one stay of execution, and he pleaded for his life, but in the end was shot on November 20th, 1903, claiming his innocence to the end. Peter was buried in the prison cemetery, which was located just outside the prison yard adjacent to the farm. In all, 36 prisoners were buried in the prison cemetery. Prisoners buried there died from old age, sickness, and of course, execution. No family came to claim the bodies or didn't want to lay claim to the bodies. All had grave markers, but over the years, some became unreadable due to weathering. It took some time to decide what to do with this cemetery after the prison closed. In 1957, the remains were all exhumed using prison farm labor and moved to the new prison cemetery in Draper. In case you were wondering, yes, all of the bodies were accounted for and none were left behind. There are no graves left at the current Sugar House Park. It appears that the cemetery was taken care of by the prison. An article in the Salt Lake Telegram from May of 1934 tells of the family of Warden E.E. E. Davis decorating the graves with flowers from the penitentiary garden for Memorial Day. In 1987, all of the remains of prisoners buried at the Draper Prison were exhumed, cremated, and interred in two plots in the Salt Lake City Cemetery. There are grave markers at these plots if you would like to go and visit. I have more to tell you about the graves a bit later. While the penitentiary was initially built outside the city limits, it didn't stay that way. Over time, the city expanded and houses and shops popped up around the prison. It became part of the community. Many people who lived and grew up in Sugar House have memories, sometimes very fond memories, of their interactions with the prison and the inmates. I heard a story about a mother who was in her front yard calling her children to come home. One of the inmates working outside the prison yard called over to her that he had seen her kids walking down the street and pointed in the direction they went. It makes me wonder if this was alarming to the woman or just another day living across the street from a prison. I've also heard stories about people playing baseball against the prison team, inmates fixing people's cars, and neighborhood kids stealing food from the prison farm. 
I wanted to get more community stories, so I reached out to Laurie Bray, who knows a lot about the history of Sugar House. A few years back, the Sugar House Community Council collected oral histories from the community, and she was involved in this project. One of the stories she remembers was that of prisoners handing money through the fence to neighborhood kids to go buy gum, candy, and sometimes cigarettes for them. And the neighborhood kids did this, delivering the goods right back to the prisoners. Laurie put me in touch with Amy Berry, and Amy had some stories. Amy's mom and uncle grew up in a house on the edge of the prison property. Her uncle Bob related a few stories to Amy that she shared with me. For them, living near the prison had both its perks and its downside. One downside was hearing the siren from the prison alerting that an inmate had escaped. Bob remembers being a young kid and hearing the siren go off. Their house wasn't near any other neighbor, so they had nowhere else to go. They would lock the doors and hide. When you're seven, things like that can be pretty scary. A few years later, Bob would have a much different experience with the inmates and guards. When the prison closed in the early 50s, about 20 inmates and a couple guards were left behind to continue working on the farm. Bob needed a place to house his horse, so he went down to the guards and asked if he could use their stable for his horse. With that, he made friends not only with the guards, but also the inmates. He spent a lot of time with them, often eating meals and hanging out. He especially loved eating the strawberry ice cream the inmates made right out of the vat. Now, remember when I said I had a story about the prison cemetery? Well, Amy's mom said that when the inmates disinterred the remains at the cemetery, people gathered to watch the process, including her. Now, some might find this macabre, but I can understand the morbid curiosity of kids and community members watching this. I mean, the prison was such a big part of their life, and this would just be another experience to go with their many experiences with the prison. I would have been right there to watch it, too. So if you have any stories about the prison, I would love to hear them. Please send me a message on Facebook or Instagram, and I'll share them on my page. Documenting oral histories is one way for us to remember the historical buildings we have lost. In the 30s, officials got serious about building a new prison. The current one was not only in disrepair, but was very overcrowded. It was built to house around 300 prisoners, but now had more than 400 and there was no way to separate the inmates considered violent from the rest of the population, which meant that someone in prison for murder could be housed next to someone in prison for theft. In late 1939, Governor Blood, members of his advisory board, and the State Board of Corrections announced the point of the mountain was the site for the new prison. 20 acres would hold all of the new buildings, and 710 acres would surround the site. Again, officials chose a site outside of the city. Back then, there were only farms and ranches. And today? Well, we'll get to today in a little bit. It would be 12 years before inmates were transferred to the new prison. In the meantime, there was much discussion on what to do with the old prison site. 
the Utah Sons of the Pioneers and the Salt Lake Chamber of Commerce favored building a Pioneer Village State Park with buildings and relics from Utah's pioneer past. They wanted to mirror this park after others such as Williamsburg in Virginia. They also believed this park would be so attractive to tourists that they would extend their stay in the city just to visit it. If this whole idea sounds familiar, well, it is, and it came to fruition in 1959 with the beginnings of what is now This Is The Place Heritage Park at the mouth of Emigration Canyon. The Salt Lake County War Memorial Committee had different plans. Their proposal was for a $750,000 war memorial in the form of a sports palace and veterans headquarters. They touted an attached convention hall, meeting halls, and offices for their organization. Others wanted to build an amphitheater much like that of the Hollywood Bowl, and even the city's defense director asked about using the prison for their office. He reasoned that the prison buildings were made of reinforced concrete, had basements, and would make a safe nerve center for the 200 people that worked for the civil defense operations. But by far, my favorite proposal was from the Federated Utah Artists, who opposed the demolition of the buildings and the walls. Their director, Lynn Fawcett, proposed to hold their annual arts festival in the prison grounds and added that the buildings and walls would be very useful if the site were to become a park. That's definitely my kind of people. The only thing everyone agreed on was that the site needed to be preserved as a park. In fact, 1947's Senate Bill 20 did just that. It designated the prison site as a state park. In an article in the Sugar House Bulletin from January 1951 with the headline, quote, This site will be a lovely centerpiece for Utah, end quote, shows a picture of the site designating the different buildings and areas proposed, which included a scenic wonders building, all-purpose building, pioneer village, open-air amphitheater, ornamental gardens, a theater, a lake, picnic areas, tennis courts, swimming pools, flower garden, and other open areas. In addition, 30 acres would be set aside for the building of the Southeast High School, which is now known as Highland High. This article seems to knock everyone's idea out in one shot. 10 years later, in 1958, long after all the prison buildings and walls had been torn down, there still wasn't any movement on the development of the park. But soon after, beautification projects started and the park became the lovely place that we know of today. In March of 1951, all 441 inmates were transferred from the old prison in Sugar House to the new one in Draper. Buses lined up on 2100 South from the prison all the way down to State Street. Most inmates weren't handcuffed and no one made any attempt to escape. In fact, it went pretty smoothly with only a couple of minor incidents. The transferring of inmates from the old prison to the new one may have gone smoothly, but what the inmates left behind was another story. Before leaving, inmates broke almost every window, tore up pillows and mattresses, and scattered trash and belongings throughout the halls and cells. This wasn't the only thing left behind. There was also the rat problem. This was combated with a thorough cleaning of all the buildings, rat poisoning, and filling in of the garbage dump outside of the prison walls. 
Soon, the process of demolishing the buildings began. The heavy steel steps, cell plates, and boiler plates were removed and taken to the new prison for use in the maximum security cell block. As I mentioned in episode one, so was the Stewart's patent jail and locking and operating device manufactured by the Stewart Ironworks Company of Cincinnati, Ohio. Any other valuable material was sold to the highest bidder. That is what the sightseers, scavengers, and souvenir collectors didn't take on their nightly break-ins. The way the old buildings and the walls went out was quite a spectacle. The original cell house and warden's house, along with some other buildings, were used as a fire school for the Salt Lake City Fire Department. So it was burned out before it was demolished by the proverbial wrecking ball. As for the outer walls, well, according to a picture in the Utah Division of State History Digital Archives, it was blown up with dynamite. Now, I'm not sure if this was how the whole wall came down, but some of it was blown up with dynamite. Definitely something that I don't think would happen today. By late 1951, the side of the prison looked something like the aftermath of a bomb. Using blowtorches, jackhammers, crowbars, tractors, and other machinery, seven inmates, along with one supervisor, reduced all the buildings to rubble, leaving behind an estimated 5,000 tons of scrap steel. Some of the scrap was taken for use in the new prison, but the rest was sold or buried. Yes, buried. When I was talking to Amy about her uncle, she also told me that excavations under 1300 East on the west side of the park uncovered a bunch of rebarb and concrete, most likely from the remains of the old prison buildings. Actually, right there used to be a garbage dump for the locals, so why not dump the remains of the prison there too? Now I want to go back to the idea from the Federated Utah Artists for preserving the prison site. Historic prisons, such as the Idaho Penitentiary, West Virginia State Penitentiary, Joliet Correctional Center, Missouri State Penitentiary, Eastern State Penitentiary, and my personal favorite, Alcatraz, are just a few examples of historic prisons that have been saved and repurposed as museums, community gathering spaces, and film locations. There's a reason we still know about the Birdman of Alcatraz and Al Capone, and that Shawshank Redemption had the perfect gritty prison feel. It's because we can still visit these places, touch the stones, and hear its stories. Think about how much different Sugar House Park would look if the prison buildings had been incorporated into the park. Would all these stories I just told you be more widely known? It's definitely something to consider. Luckily, we have the opportunity to not repeat the past. With a new Utah State Prison being constructed, there is talk of what to do with the current Draper Prison buildings. Many people want to see the original 1950s buildings preserved. The Draper Historic Commission, along with community members and organizations such as Preservation Utah, are working to make this happen. I, for one, hope that they succeed. Check out my Instagram and Facebook pages at Demolish Salt Lake Podcast for cool historic photos of the prison. 
Also, follow me at DemolishSLPod on Twitter. And if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. It is spring break at the DSLP studios, so I'm taking an extra week off. Instead of two weeks, I'll be back in three weeks to talk about a very cool, historic brewery. I'll see you then.